If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. I will add my Merry Christmas to you all. It is, what a, what a sweet and worshipful season. And it can be made more worshipful as we anticipate the coming of Christ throughout this Christmas season, not just, you know, for some of us, Christmas might just sneak up on you. You get lost in the hustle and bustle of the busyness of the end of the year, and then all of a sudden it's Christmas, and you're like, oh, I'm supposed to be worshiping. It's mainly about Jesus, but I'm also stressed about traditions and presents and things. And so that's why we have tried to, as a church, have this protracted time each year of beholding the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, both at his first coming, but also as a fuel to anticipate his next coming. We're looking again in Isaiah chapter 9 at these titles or names of this promised Messiah. So we have looked at the government being on the shoulder of the Christ who was to come. We've looked at him being our wonderful counselor and our mighty God. And then this morning, we're looking at his title of Everlasting Father. Let me read it to us in in honor of the reading of God's word. I want you to stand for this one verse. So stand with me, please. This is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Father, you are the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we praise you that you so loved the world that you sent your Son into the world so that whoever would believe on him would not perish but have eternal life, would be brought into relationship with you as our very own Father. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are indeed mighty God in the flesh. That right now you reign as both God and man over all that you have made. And you are, as we have seen, our wonderful counselor. So would you come and give us wisdom as we open your word? Would you unfold it to us? Give us wisdom from above that we do not have in ourselves. God, we need you by your spirit to come and illuminate your word to us. We pray and ask all these things in the matchless and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. We have this um, print at the top of our stairwell in our house that is my favorite in the house. Kayla uh, took big, vivid, bright letters and wrote the name Jesus real big in the center of the print. And it is the name above every name. But all around it in black hand lettering with different fonts, she wrote a myriad of other names for Christ that he has revealed himself to us. These different titles or different names by which he has shown us who he is and what he is like. Names like the Alpha and the Omega, the Great I Am, the Radiance of the Father's Glory, the Word Made Flesh, the light of the world, the Lamb of God, our great high priest, wonderful counselor, mighty God, 
Lord of Lords, the way, the truth, and the life, faithful and true. Emmanuel, the head of the body, the church, and many, many others. Like I talked about two weeks ago, when God gives us his names, when Jesus has revealed these names to us, he is inviting us to know him, inviting us to know what he is like. And it is not just an invitation to know him, but an invitation into friendship. He's revealing things to you about him that are wonderful, like we saw two weeks ago, things that are too high for our understanding. And he is condescending to reveal himself to you in a way that you would not otherwise have found out about him. And of all the names or titles of Christ that you'll read or hear, I don't know if there are any that are as initially puzzling as Everlasting Father. So I want to begin this time together, if you're a note taker, with this heading of the son who is not the father. So I want to make sure that we know what Isaiah is not saying before we get to what he is saying. Christ as the everlasting father. This is a title or term for this king who was to come. And it is a statement about who he is in relation to time and in relation to his people, his subjects, not a term for who he is in relation to the other members of the Trinity. This is not a statement about who he is in relation to the Godhead. So I want to give us, I want you to lean in because this is beautiful and glorious. I'm not going to spend long here, but any chance we can where we have opportunity to teach about the nature and character of God and and behold and glory and exult together in the God who is a trinity, then we need to give clarity to you, give pastoral wisdom to you and unfolding the word to say, how can we know this God who is both three and one? And how can we think rightly in him and not in a way that is confusing or muddled? And I just imagine if you were reading this verse on your own, you would go, wonderful counselor. Yes, Lord, praise you. Mighty God, amen. Everlasting Father. Okay, that's confusing. I'll stick a pen in it and we'll come back to it. And then you just never come back to it. So here we are. Let's get to it. So I want to look with you at this Trinitarian doctrine. We're going to do this quick, but I'm going to do it hopefully as slow enough to be clear. And then we're moving on to, okay, well, what does it mean that he is everlasting Father? So the doctrine of the Trinity is at the heart of the Christian faith. We believe in one triune God. Any so-called God who is not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not the one God. So you'll hear Mormons or Jehovah's Witness or even Muslims say, well, we believe in the same God. We just have differences of opinion about the nature of Jesus Christ. To which our response is, we do not believe in the same God because the one God is the one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And any God who is not the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is not God. So the doctrine, though not easily understood to the natural mind, can be easily summarized in just seven statements. I want to give them to you. They're very simple. There is only one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. 
The Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. There you have the doctrine of the Trinity in seven statements. I said easily, ex- easily described, not easily explained or understood. Um, I love what my dad says often, that I got it small enough for your easy understanding is not big enough for your worship. But this is not just mere content for theological discussion in stuffy libraries that smell of mold and mahogany, right? This is, this is for our delight and for our worship. It's for our everyday help about who God is and his nature of a God who invites us into community that he has always had, into love that he has always had. He's never been by himself to be needy of anything, to be lonely for anyone, or to have a need for any creation to exercise his love or his goodness. So there are three distinct persons with one essence, or you could say with one godness to this Godhead. The Athanasian creeds is one of the creeds that's universally accepted by all Christians, summarizes what we believe about God as he's revealed himself in his word in this way. Now, this is the Catholic faith, Catholic meaning universal, not Roman Catholic, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, and their glory equal, and their majesty co-eternal. So you have to beware of false gospels that want to blend the persons or divide the essence of who God is. And we want to delight in God in all of his Trinitarian beauty, believing him, getting to know him, loving him, enjoying him. And so I'm not going to dive into all the different, you can go look it up, go look up, I'll send you articles or links, different heresies that have revolved around the Trinity and the nature of the Trinity, but you can pick out Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism, for one, one's kind of like an Arianism that denies the full deity of Christ. And Mormons believe in this tritheism, which basically calls the persons of the Godhead three distinct beings or three separate gods. That is not God as he has revealed himself in the Bible. You have to watch out too for modalism that says God was somehow father in the Old Testament and then he came as Jesus Christ and now he exists in the person of the Holy Spirit and he just kind of oozes and changes form and is somehow kind of like an egg being a shell and a yolk and, a, and some kind of egg white substance as an illustration. So though there's no explicit reference to the word Trinity in the word of God, you can see the Trinity on display in all the scriptures. You can start in Genesis chapter 1 where God says, let us make man in our image. There's one image and there's a plurality speaking. Or Jesus saying, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, so go and make disciples, baptizing them in the one name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. And I want to spend the rest of our time as we look at the Christ who has revealed the Father. 
And as we look at Christ as everlasting Father, Hebrews is going to help us. So in Hebrews chapter 1, the Word of God says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance. This is the Son. The radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of the Father's nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Or you can look at verse 8. Of the Son, the Father says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So one of the ways that God has spoken to us in the Son in these last days, that last days being a description of all the days since Jesus ascended to the Father, one of the ways that he has spoken to us in the Son is in revealing to us the nature of God as Father. Right? This, is a, this is a way where God shows up to Moses and he says, I didn't reveal myself to Abraham in this way, but now I reveal myself to you as I am. And in the same way, Jesus comes to us and he says, when you pray, I want you to pray then in this way, revolutionary, calling God Father. So he came to show us who the Father is and what he is like. But Isaiah is not saying that the coming son of David would be God the Father in the flesh. He is not saying that. So that would be some modalistic version of God where we, we hear, all right, he's coming and he's going to be wonderful counselor and mighty God and also God the Father, but just in the flesh. That is not what Isaiah is saying. But this king, mighty God, born as a child, given to us, one of his titles would be everlasting father. He would rule in a way that would reflect and reveal the Father's heart as the exact imprint of the Father's nature now in the flesh. So in what way is Jesus everlasting Father? That's where I want to spend the rest of our time together. So first we have the Son who is not the Father and now the Son who is called everlasting Father. This term could be translated everlasting Father or father of eternity, father of the age to come. That's how some manuscripts of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translate this passage saying he is the father of the age to come. But in Hebrew, the term father is also an idiom or a term that was used to refer to a a benevolent or a just ruler. So you can see this later in Isaiah in chapter 22, verse 21, where one of the descendants of David, Eliakim, is prophesied to be given ruled by by God. And God says he will rule well as a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of Judah. So in calling Jesus everlasting father as the king who would come, he is saying Isaiah is saying something about the nature of the Messiah's rule, that he would rule 
in a fatherly, benevolent way with kindness and with absolute authority, but his rule would reflect that of a father. And so this is one of the things that's so beautiful about the call for fathers to rule well in the home and manage their own households well is it's supposed to be reflective of the Christ who is king over his kingdom and that he rules with absolute authority and with wisdom and with care and with kindness. So we're going to continue to look at the book of Hebrews and spend the rest of our time beholding ways in which Jesus rules like a father for us. The first is that he is the progenitor of his people. And you say, pro what? And I said, yes, progenitor, not progenitor, even though we are progenitors around here. Um, but progenitor means that he is this forefather ancestor, that he is before the beginning of all of his people. And so in Isaiah calling Jesus everlasting father, he is aiming at this truth that Jesus is the head of a new family, that there is a, a new humanity that this Messiah was coming to create, of which he would be the head like a father. Jesus is the source of life for his people, just as he's always been the author of creation. So look back at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 10. And this is the father speaking to Jesus, which is so glorious. And I want you to imagine him talking to Jesus like this, and this is the one who came and became a man for you. The Father says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. This is the same son of David who is prophesied to rule over the throne of the universe forever. And this Jesus is bigger than the cosmos. He's bigger than the universe. He is more constant and more certain than the stars that he created in the sky. He is the source, the beginning, the author, the father, if you will, of all of creation in that he is the beginning of it. He is the one who created and produced all of creation. So this text in Hebrews is aiming at, he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is the one who created all things and for him all things exist. But God the Father not only created the world through Christ, he redeemed the world through Christ and he's recreating a new heavens and a new earth through him. And that is the focus of everlasting in Isaiah chapter 9. It's not mainly on Jesus being everlasting in the past as the source of creation. It's focused mainly on him being the source or the beginning of a new creation and a new kingdom that he is bringing about on the earth. Him being, listen to this, the source and the sustainer of the age to come and the source of his people's participation and enjoyment of it. If you enjoy everlasting life in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus, it will be because he is your source 
of life. He is the one who procured it and secured it for you, and he is the source of your participation in the kingdom and your enjoyment of it. And so the rest of our time looking at Jesus as the Father, the everlasting Father of our salvation will be in Hebrews chapter 2. So you may have to flip one page, or it may just be right there open in your lap. In Hebrews chapter 2, you may even see a header in your Bible that says the founder of our salvation. But I want to look with you beginning at verse 10. We're looking at Christ being the, the father, the progenitor of his people. And the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2.10, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. So just in case you're lost, that is Jesus. For whom and all things exist through Jesus and for Jesus. It is fitting that in bringing many sons to glory, that he should make the founder of their salvation. Oh, I'm sorry, you guys, back up. I'm going to edit this out. This is talking about God the Father, all right? So it's fitting that he, God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. I'm not spending a lot of time here. I want you to see this is a beautiful description of our Lord Jesus and us having the same source, the same Father. So Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. He, Jesus is the one who sanctifies us, and we all have the same source in one heavenly Father. Now look at verse 11 and 12. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. So these are truths that Jesus is saying through the mouth of the psalmist, worship and trust that he is giving to the Father. I will put my trust in him. I will sing your praise in the midst of the congregation. And then again, look at the end of verse 13. Behold, I and the children God has given me. I want to focus with you on verse 13 and in verse 10, where it says that Jesus is the founder of their salvation. Now, he has made perfect through the suffering of the cross, not in that Jesus was imperfect and like sinful and needed to be sanctified or made perfect, but that he reached God's intended end. He became a glorified man for us to be sanctified into that image through the suffering of death. He was crucified for our sins. He was raised in glory and he became the end or the goal of all of his people that God when he saves us and sanctifies us, he is sanctifying us into the image of that resurrected and glorified Christ. And Jesus became the founder of our salvation. And in verse 13, he is quoting from Isaiah 8, verse 18, when he says, I and the children that God has given me. And if you're doing our Advent devotional with us, you may remember in day 11 where Piper points out that he's quoting Isaiah 8, verse 18, and that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the, 
writer of Hebrews is putting these words of Isaiah in the mouth of Christ, saying, these are spiritual offspring of Christ. I and the children that you have given me. That in a real way, he has become a new head, like Adam was the head of all humanity, and Christ became a new federal head, a new father over a new humanity where we're delivered out of Adam's sinful race and into the line of Christ. And Jesus is said to have spiritual offspring, that he is the fount of a new humanity, that he's redeeming for his own possession. He is the last Adam and the spiritual father of the children that the father has given to him. So you can see this in other language that Jesus uses, like in John 17, verse 2, where he is praying and he says, You, Father, have given him, the Son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. So Jesus is the source of life and he gives life to those who would believe in him, to those who obey him with an obedient faith. Somebody who gives life to someone else where they, they did not exist before, we call a father. He is a spiritual father to offspring that the father gives to him. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, it says that Jesus being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And that, that source language is the same language as the founder. He is the everlasting father of our salvation, which he gives to all who trust him. He is the author of our eternity and eternally our head and our ruler. And in that way, he is the father of his people. So he rules as our everlasting father in the sense that he's the progenitor, the source of our salvation and the source of the age to come. But he also demonstrates his father rule in that he is the protector of his people. If you were to think about good fathers and what they do in their roles, how do they love their families? I would say that chief among those responsibilities would be to protect and to provide for his family. For his family to feel safe in his love and protection and in his provision for his children. That has physical aspects and spiritual aspects, but what we are going to see in the same passage in Hebrew is, is that Jesus rules in a fatherly way in both of these capacities. So first, he is the protector of his people. Let's keep reading in chapter 2. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, these spiritual children, these spiritual offspring, us who have placed our trust in Christ, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Which I hope when you read that, I want to make sure you're not getting confused about what partook of these things it means and the reason why he did. It's saying because you're a human 
And if he wanted to destroy the enemy's power over your life, if he wanted to destroy the sin that enslaved you, if he wanted to set you free from death, he had to also become a human. And the reason why he did it is to destroy the devil and deliver you from certain death. It's not just the fear of death that he delivers you from, but a reason, a, a need to fear death. And so we must look at this and cry, what a strong savior, what a warrior, what a father-like ruler, that he would see a people in need like children and come to their aid and to their rescue and come to deliver us from these enemies that were too strong for us. I, I hope and pray that so many of you have known Christ for so long that when you think about the devil, you think he's no match for Jesus. Like I don't, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the enemy. And so I, I, don't, I don't consider how strong he is or even how supernatural he's just, he can't hold a candle to Jesus and his greatness. And maybe you've known Christ for so long that you can't remember the last time you were afraid of death. You just, you haven't thought of death as an enemy. Maybe it's been a long time since you've lost a loved one, but it, it can be easy for us to not really consider the, the weight of what Jesus has actually delivered us from because you haven't feared the devil or death or hell in such a long time. But that is because Jesus is your protector and he came for you when you were so mired in your sin, death was coming for you like a freight train. You were tied up on the tracks and there was no one coming. Death was coming for you and it, like it has come for all people and was inevitable. And the enemy enslaved you, held you captive to do his will and you could not stop sinning. You could not stop being about yourself and pursuing your own self and your own lust. You were enslaved and you are heading to stand before a holy God. And so what Jesus saves us from, what he protects us from is staggering. This text says that we were held captive by the devil to do his will. He has enslaved us through fear of death our whole lives long to cause us to tremble and fear and live enslaved. And he came to deliver us from the devil's chains that were too strong for us and to deliver us from death itself. But the greatest inescapable, terrifying reality that Jesus came to set us free from, that he came to protect us from, was his own wrath. God being holy and perfect and good in all of his ways could not suffer our sin going unpunished would not be just to let criminals against his glory go free or to turn a blind eye to the wickedness and the evil that marked us as his enemies. And so the, the devil's condemnation and the justice of death were inescapable enough, but as enemies, they paled in comparison to the God that we had made an enemy by our own rebellion against him. Who could deliver you if God is your enemy? Who could do it? Who would come to your rescue? 
So apart from Christ, outside of Christ, the, the state that every single person is born into is the domain of darkness, enslaved by the devil, held captive to do his will. He, through fear of death, enchains them their whole lives long. And they have coming for them certain death that is inescapable. And then beyond that, eternal death in the form of the wrath of Almighty God. And there is no one who can deliver from any of those except for the Lord Jesus. And he came. In Hebrews 2, verse 17 says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. This is the chief way that Jesus protects his people, that the high priest would go in with a spotless lamb once a year into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of the people as their representative. But Hebrews says that this high priest went in not with a sacrifice outside of himself, but who offered himself as the sacrifice, the once and for all offering to make atonement for the sins of his people. By his own blood, Christ made a covering for his people the full weight of the wrath of God that you and I deserve fell on him. He protected you. We were cursed under the law for our sin and he took our curse upon himself to take our sin and our penalty of our sin away from us. So you need to hear this believer. If you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the everlasting Father, has protected you in providing pardon for you as a gift of his love you are safe and free he absorbed the wrath of God for all of his people forever protecting us from the penalty of our sin protecting us forever from the devil and from death and from his own wrath this is the protector that you have in King Jesus but he's not only the protector for his people, he's the provider for his people. And so if you can keep a finger in Hebrews 2, you can go to Isaiah chapter 53. I want you to hear this glorious description of the fullness of the propitiation that Christ is for his spiritual children. We've talked about propitiation much here in this church. It's a word that you're probably only going to hear in the Bible and you may have never heard it before. But when we talk about propitiation, we are talking about Christ taking the place of his people and God expiring all his wrath in the person of Jesus Christ, that he received the curse for us and like a sponge absorbed all the wrath of Almighty God. He has protected all those who place their trust in him. But propitiation doesn't stop there. Jesus then, it's like all that same weight and fury of the wrath that was going into the sun now gets wrung out on his people in blessing and in provision in what only he 
deserves. So propitiation has wrapped up in it both his protection and his provision. He protects you in absorbing all the wrath and drinking down the cup of the wrath of the God that was due to you. And then he takes all the blessing and all the glory and all the honor that he deserves and he meets it out to you on the basis of his blood that he offered in your place. This is how Isaiah describes it in chapter 53 in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This is the other half of that meaning of propitiation. That yes, he offered himself as a guilt offering for your guilt and for my guilt so that he could cleanse our consciences of our guilt and set us free from our sin, to forgive you of your sin. Where it is out of the mind of God, he calls it for, forgotten, removed, thrown behind his back, that Jesus took your sin on his shoulders and he poured out himself to death and God saw his sacrifice and was satisfied. That is what propitiation means. That God the Father saw the sacrifice of Christ in your place and his condemnation over you that you deserved for your sin was absorbed in the flesh of Christ and God the Father was satisfied with the offering of Christ. And it says he will see his offspring. That itself being a reference to the resurrection, that this Christ would not stay dead, but he would be raised from the dead and he would see his offspring. Who are his offspring? All those for whom he died. All those who would place their trust in him. And what would he do? By grace through faith, make them to be accounted righteous. This is his provision for his people that he makes us spiritually alive, born into his kingdom, where he rules and protects and provides for his people. This provision of the righteousness of Christ was God's provision of your greatest need, that you had no righteousness in yourself. If you are outside of Christ, if you have yet to place your trust in him, the word of God says that there is no one good, not one and the reality of the enemy's condemnation of you and him causing you to fear death is real. It's a real fear because death really is coming and God really will judge the world. And no one outside of Christ will be spared from the just punishment of sin from a holy God. But God so loved the world that he sent Jesus into the world and the Father, Jesus willingly went to the cross. No one took his life from him. He willingly went and then the father was pleased to crush him in your place so that you could go free. 
Jesus not only protected you in taking the punishment that you deserved, he provided for you in having a full switching of places. He took your sin and he gives to you his righteousness. This is what it means to be justified by faith. It is the free gift of God to all who believe on Jesus for the salvation of their souls. And then in Romans 8, Paul says, if God did not spare his own son, but freely delivered him over for us all, if he provided for your greatest need, believer, then how will he not also with him freely give you all things? So as you think about Christ being your everlasting father, it means that in all these ways that he is ruling over us like a father, that he is the one who created and secured his kingdom for us and he invites us into it for our participation and enjoyment of it. He rules over us with absolute protection and he's provided for our greatest need in taking our curse and giving us his blessing. And he is everlastingly so. So the term everlasting father is to give you this surety, this certainty that it's not just that Christ has and that there is another coming later who will somehow be able to up him, upend him, somehow able to ruin the protection that he gives to you or take away the provision that he's made for you. He is everlastingly this king who rules as a father. So because of Christ, your father, like protector, you are forever safe under his rule. Because of Christ, your father-like provider, you forever have all you need. We have the greatest protection and the greatest provision imaginable. Imaginable. And it's all an expression of love for his people. So we, as his people, should be done with fear, with worry, over our needs, over our safety, that we have ruling over us and ruling over the cosmos, our King, who reigns in our lives as everlasting Father. He protects you. He provides for you. And everything, His Word says, He is working for your good and for the glory of His name. I'm going to close with Romans chapter 5, verse 8 through 10 as a kind of summary of what God has provided for us in Christ. And all of this being an expression of his love for you. Romans 5 verse 8 through 10 says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So we have been provided this righteousness by the blood of Christ, much more it will everlastingly be so. When he comes to judge the living and the dead, we will be saved by Jesus from the wrath of God. It is done. It is finished. And verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. It's like the writer of Hebrews was saying, we are being sanctified by the Lord Jesus 
or like David preached about from 2 Peter chapter 1, we have been given all we need for life and godliness in our union with Christ. He has provided for everything that you need for your life in knowing him. And he invites you today to know him, yes, as wonderful counselor, yes, as mighty God, but also as everlasting father. So to close, the son of God is not God the father, but he rules as our everlasting father. We are his spiritual offspring. He offered himself in our place and rose from the dead to give us life. And he reigns like a father, ruling over the household that he has created with perfect wisdom, protecting us and providing for us with all of his mighty heart. Let's pray and then let's go to the table to worship at his feet together. Lord Jesus, we bow our hearts before you. Truly, you are the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of the Father's nature. And though you are not God the Father, you are our everlasting Father. We praise you for the ways that your rule and your reign in our lives have shown us what the Father is like that you have become the founder of our salvation and the source of eternal salvation for all who would believe on you. Lord, how can we thank you enough for your deliverance, for the greatness of your salvation, that you have destroyed the enemy's power in our lives. You have removed our sin from us so that now when he comes to accuse, there's nothing there. Lord, thank you for delivering us from our sin and from death and from the devil. You are a strong protector. And we praise you for your provision of your righteousness. God, give us faith to trust you. Lord, if you've provided and protected us in all these ways, how can we not trust you to everlastingly do so? Please help us, Lord Jesus, to worship you in spirit and in truth this Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.